Let's just start by reading this together. Psalm 42. As a deer longs for flowing streams, my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? And I want to turn to John 21. Just read that um, conversation with Jesus we looked at last week briefly. You don't have to read it out loud with me, but let's follow along together. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went, and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death Peter would glorify God with. And then he said to Peter, follow me, follow me. Let's pray. Father, we, we would pray that the, the scriptures would be a backdrop to um, the conversation we started last week around um, what we love and what we long for. Would you speak um, so directly into our hearts today? Maybe there's parts of these texts that you want to uh, prompt us with more than what I might even have to say. And if that's the case for anyone here today, God, would we be open to uh, align your spirit to reveal that to us? So we just say welcome to, uh, to your words and uh, what we want to walk through in this next few moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we asked this question. You remember the question? What do you... I think it's on the screen. There you see. Well, that was easy. You guys should just cheat and look at the screen. Um, so we asked this question, what do you love? What do you long for? And we asked, also asked, well, how do we know what we love? And how do we know what we long for? And so I left you with some homework last week. Did anybody do the homework? We said, track what you love. Track what you love. In other words, look into your heart, we said, like the things we desire most. And also look at our hands or our habits, the things we do repeatedly, the, the, the purchases we make, the, the attention we give to things. And so to ask this question so we can reflect on what we love. We can reflect on what we love. Did anybody get a chance to think about that? Did anybody get a chance to track? Some people are like, I don't, I don't want to admit that I didn't, you know, I think next time I'm going to just give out pieces of paper and you're going to have to kind of like come back and get them signed from people that you've, you've done that, you know? Um, no, we don't want to go that far. But it's, it's a serious question and it's a serious assignment in a sense to track the things we do, the things we pay attention to, what's going on in our hearts, so we can actually answer the question, what do we love? What, do we, what are we devoted to? And today as we continue the series, we're not really starting a brand new message, but we're continuing the conversation. And I have another question for you. It's a follow-up question. And the question is not what do you love, but what shapes your love? What shapes your love? What shapes or forms, or influences what you and I are devoted to. Jesus asked this question to Peter, do you love me? 
And Peter said, Jesus, of course I love you. And we can do that. Like I think even in worship, right? We sing, God, I love you. It's, it's in, in a way like Peter, we can say, of course I love you. Of course I do. And Jesus kept probing because he was after the longings of Peter's heart, not just a verbal word. We read this phrase from James Smith last week. He says, um, Jesus isn't content simply to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He's after nothing less than your wants or your longings. In fact, this series is, is uh, mainly based on his book called You Are What You Love. And so I might be quoting him or paraphrasing him at times. And uh, it's a really wonderful book to reflect on. But consider what Jesus asked for, and then think of Jesus' other statements. Jesus quoted the Old Testament when he was asked what the law and the prophets hung on, and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus was teaching the disciples about what it meant to depend on him, he said, don't worry about you know, what you eat or drink or what you wear. He says, look how God provides for so many things. And at the end of that conversation, he tells his disciples, seek first my kingdom and righteousness. When Jesus invited people to follow him and he said it again to Peter, he reminded Peter now towards the end of their, you know, when they would be physically present with one another, follow me. Those are strong words in the New Testament. Love, seek, follow. So to worship God, to be devoted to God, and as we follow Christ, it's to love him, to seek him, to follow him. That's, that's the expression of our love. It's really tangible. It's really about what we do with our lives. And so in this series, I don't want to just point us to say, hey, let's love God more. We're going to actually talk about worship uh, next week a little bit more, what we understand as worship. But I don't want to just point us to saying, love God more, worship God more. I want us to actually discern what we love and if some of those loves detour us from our devotion to God. When we start to discover what we actually love, does, does that detour us from our love for God or our devotion to him? So last week we asked a question, what do you love? Today, the question is, what shapes your love? Um, I think Anne Hathaway is a great actor. And she was in a movie called um, The Devil Wears Prada. Anybody ever see that movie a long time ago? Meryl Street is in it as well. Well, uh, Anne Hathaway plays a girl named Andrea. And Andrea is just, she just finishes university. She's like beaming with hope to become a journalist and to work somewhere really great. She's fresh out of college, just aspiring journalist that way. And she's looking for a break. And she lands a job uh, at a fashion magazine. So not exactly where she wanted to, you know, where she wants to end up as a journalist, but she landed a job as an assistant to the CEO, the director, who's named Miranda. And she's like one of the most famous uh, fashion execs around. So Andrea finds this job and she, start, she stumbles in this job at first. She doesn't look the part. She doesn't, she doesn't dress very fashionable. She doesn't know how to act around all those kinds of people necessarily. And, and she, she's not the fashion type, but she starts to get good at her job and she starts to be intuitive uh, with Miranda and, and her needs. And, and, and Miranda, her boss, starts to like what she does. And, and Andrea starts to really get involved in her work. And something happens as she gets immersed in the industry. She starts acting a little differently. She starts treating her friends differently. She starts to have conflict with her boyfriend. The job begins to change her. The environment begins to change her. And in fact, there's a line in the movie where her boyfriend says to her, you've become what you once ridiculed, he tells her. 
So she realizes she's become what she never wanted to become because something else was shaping her. Something else was forming her. And, and I want us to think about this, this short phrase. It's this. The things we do do something to us. The things we do do something to us. See, today we're not just saying, what do you love? We're saying, what forms your love? And as we see in this story, but what we'll see as we unpack it, is the things we do actually do something to us. See, that, that's why we asked last week, track your habits. Track what you think about most. Track what you pay attention to most, where you spend your money most, because our habits shape what we love or shape our loves. I tried to write it as clear as possible, and I, I wrote this next phrase out. And uh, the phrase says this, if habits shape what we love and habits are formed, then what, for, then what forms our habits? So let's just, it's a long phrase, right? If habits shape what we love and habits are formed, then what forms our habits? If our predictable patterns and our repeated decisions and what we do by second nature, sometimes even automated, if that actually shapes what we love and those things we do are formed somehow in us, then what forms those habits? What leads us to even have those habits? I'm going to introduce a word to maybe for some of you it's a new word. We don't really use it a lot at Westside. It's the word liturgy. And liturgy is actually more of a religious uh, word that we use in worship. We talk about Christian liturgy. Even what we walked through this morning, the fact that we called you to worship and that we sang songs of praise and worship and adoration, that we paused for prayer, that we sent people out in the sense to mission, um, that we ended up reflecting internally. Now we've opened up the scripture. That's a liturgy. That's part of what we might call a Christian liturgy. And that liturgy forms us. It shapes us. And, and we follow a form. We're not a liturgical church as much. You can go to another church and it's all listed out for you, right? Your prayers and how you repeat back and, and, and what we respond to one another. People might call that more of a liturgical church, but we still have a liturgy in some way because we follow a form. But here's, here's the idea. This is what liturgy is. Liturgy is rituals that are loaded with meaning and rituals that are loaded with a story about who you are and who I am. That's what a liturgy is. It's a ritual that nurtures your understanding of what you're made for and what I'm made for. That's what liturgy does. So in Christian liturgy, in our worship, in our reading, in our practices, in our singing, it's loaded with God's ultimate story and purpose about who you and I are. That's what Christian liturgy is meant to do. Liturgy communicates a vision for life. And so we allow liturgies actually to form what we think life is meant to be like. Now, there's other kinds of liturgies. There's other stories that shape your story. There's other liturgies that nurture what kind of life you're going to live. There's other rituals that are filled with meaning. See, not all liturgies nurture the right kind of love, but all liturgies shape your love. You get that? Not all liturgies um, nurture the right kind of love or devotion, but every liturgy shapes you. Every liturgy has the power to shape you. So I want to talk about what, what, we want, what James Smith calls rival liturgies. You know what a rival is? If you've been on a sports team, and you're part of a school sports team, then the other school is your 
rival, right? Because you're competing with one another. There, you're, you, there's something you're in competition with. Sometimes at work, there's another, you know, a colleague of yours. And in a sense, you're, you're, you can become rivals because, you know, who's going to get like better sales or who's going to win the attention of the boss or who's going to get this project. Sometimes there's that sense of what a rival is. And I want us to consider that there's a few liturgies that battle for your heart and they battle for your soul. They battle for your devotion. And um, James Smith, he, he did something in another book um, that he, he describes the idea of a mall as a religious site. Has anybody ever gone to the mall and said, I'm going to church? No. Has anybody ever gone to the mall and said, let's go to the mall and sacrifice to the gods? No, I, I doubt it. But if you think about a mall, and James Smith tries to kind of parallel the mall and a religious temple, because a temple in medieval times was full of, rel- of religious activity that attempted to give meaning to your life. So you'd walk into a religious temple, and sometimes they were very vast and big, and sometimes it had various rooms and corners and even smaller buildings in there, and there was this activity that attempted to give people meaning and hope. Someone would walk over to one part of the the temple and hope for a sense of vocation or career. Maybe another part was about fertility and another part was about relationships and another part was about health. And so people went to these temples hoping to find meaning and purpose and hope. There's a picture of this this, uh, medieval Indian temple. And when I looked at it, I looked at it more and more and more and I thought, I've seen that somewhere and I remember, has, have you ever been to the premium outlets in Florida? Just go to the next slide, Andy. I thought, hey, that kind of looks similar. Kind of big tower, small tower, entrance in the middle. And I thought, there's, some, there's this, this similarity between kind of these medieval temples where, we, where people would rush to to find meaning and purpose and hope with the premium outlets in Florida are now Mirabelle. You can go to the next one. I thought this one is really temple-like. Oh, it's like phew, really cool, eh? Man, you're going to find a lot of meaning and hope there. So, and I'm not knocking the mall. I'm not saying you can never go to the mall or all that. But, but think about this image. Think about this image. Think about the stories we're given to shape what we love. Now, the mall is not a theological place. When you walk into the mall, they don't give you a pamphlet for you to think through theologically what the mall is giving you or trying to do in you. But it is liturgical. It is ritualistic. It is like fueled with a story and meaning. The mall doesn't actually care what you think when you walk into it, but it does care about what you love. Right? It doesn't care what you think, but it cares about what you love. And often malls are great at making us feel at home. Have you ever walked into a mall and said, oh, there's the gap. I feel comfortable now. Or as you're walking down Fairview and all of a sudden the glass entrance, what's the glass entrance? What store has a fully glass entrance? Apple, right? It's like, oh, wow, there's just beauty there, right? Or you, you pass by Bath and Body Works and the aromas just, you just feel so good about yourself or you want more of the smells in there. When I was a kid, I remember uh, a mall in Toronto, Yorkdale Mall. It's one of the one of the most popular malls in actually Canada. And I remember as a kid that, that in the malls they had real trees, you know, and some malls do that, right? Like they have like real trees and the trees are pretty big and then there's skylights on top of the trees. So there's this sense of a, of a natural feeling in a mall. And then there's sections, there's living rooms in malls. You have little couches where you can have couches and coffee. 
So there's something there. And there's something of a mall that breeds familiarity. I went to, to Thailand a few years ago, and the hotel we were a part of was connected to a mall. And I walked into the mall, and I swear I just felt at home. I was like, this is exactly like the mall in Canada. And we had flown to a part of Thailand called Chiang Mai to, to take a three-hour drive further north near Laos. But on our way back to take the plane in Chiang Mai, I said, you got a couple of hours, you know, let's... So they, we went to a mall to eat. And I forgot to bring with me today, but I picked up two little espresso cups at the mall from Starbucks in Chiang Mai. So they say, one says Bangkok, one says Thailand. And um, here I was in Chiang Mai in a place that I've never been to, but I was familiar. I felt familiar. And I brought home a souvenir. By the way, you can't get espresso Starbucks cups in North America. Somehow only like outside of North America. From what I've seen, now they're starting to come in. But malls are great at catering to seekers, right? You get in, there's the map. You've got to know where to go. But regulars know where to go. Regulars know how to get in and out of the mall quickly. If you're an Ikea newbie, you get sucked into the vortex. But if you're an Ikea regular, you can make the shortcuts, right? And then you run for the Swedish meatballs. And so, so there's something, right? Malls, see what they're, they, they, they have this thing about them. They cater to the seeker. They cater to the regular. You can get lost in its space and unwind and rest and relax and enjoy and escape. Malls follow calendars. You know when the sidewalk sale is coming and Valentine's Day and spring liquidation and Black Friday and Boxing Day and then it starts all over again. And each mall has many altars and temples. So as you walk through it, there's invitations. Come, taste, and see that this is good. And try it. There's meaning infused in this and a hope that maybe this will fill you or renew you or meet your need. And then this last piece about the many temples or altars in the malls is that there's an exchange that takes place. There's like a priest behind the counter. And you slaughter your animal and you give them, right? Well, you don't. You take out money, your first fruits of your work, and you give it to the priest. And the priest takes your favorite color and size and pleasure and puts it in a bag. And so now you give something and you get something in return and you leave happy. Right? There's this, almost this religious exchange that takes place. So think about it. This is liturgical because this is a ritual. This is something we do as a culture. No one ever told you that the mall could give you meaning or purpose. You never thought about finding it there. You never did research like you do other things and say, is this ritual going to do something in my life? You don't actually do that. Right? You just do it. It's just a ritual. It's, just, it's a liturgy because the things we do do something to us. The things we do do something to us. And again, I, I just chose them all as an analogy, but there's rival liturgies in our culture. There's rival things that form us and shape us. They're trying to shape our love. Can you think of other rival liturgies? We're not going to list them all today. I just wanted to choose one. But can you think of other rival liturgies in our culture? Maybe media is a rival liturgy that continues to shape us. Apparently, uh, your Facebook page is wired because of algorithms to just give you what you normally search for. So your opinion is always fed back to you. Well, that shapes your love. That shapes your opinion. That shapes your, your ideas, right? 
So things like social media you know, become like a rival liturgy because we do it so often and it's a repeated practice. Selfies are like rituals. And there's, there's a whole, whole like studies now done on, on, on like what's happening in our culture because of selfies and the, the continual kind of like ritual of taking a selfie, right? And what that means and what that looks like. And Tom, um, uh, Mark Sayers, he's a great, great writer. He said this, he says, we no longer work on our souls. We now construct an image. We don't, we don't work on our souls anymore, but we construct an image of who we are for others to see. James Smith says this about these liturgies. He says, and you can read it on the screen. He says, some cultural practices will be effectively training your loves. Automating, that's a scary word, automating a kind of orientation to the world that seeps into your unconscious ways of being. He goes on to say, he says, we unconsciously learn to love rival kingdoms because we don't realize we're participating in rival liturgies. Did you catch that? We unconsciously learn to live rival kingdoms because, love rival kingdoms because we don't realize we're participating in rival liturgies. How do we not know? Because we become accustomed, right? We just become used to it. It's just our life. It's it's the systems we live in. And and again, I'm not painting a black brush on everything in culture, obviously. And I know what's going to happen. Somebody's going shopping after and they're going to see someone from church in the mall. They're like, oh my goodness, I better leave. You know, like... (laughs) They've caught me in the rival liturgy. No, like don't, don't freak out. It's not like, but, but it's to be aware, to recognize this. How immersed we are. There's a, a man by the name of David Wallace and he was, he was speaking at, um, to a whole bunch of graduates at a commencement address at a college, Kenyan college. And as he's, he's reaching out and speaking to these college students, these university students that are graduating and moving into you know, the world and movement and life and, and vocation and career, He's telling the graduates to be aware of the culture they're immersed in. He's trying to tell them, listen, you're immersed in a culture and you just need to be aware that sometimes you're blind to the culture that you're even immersed in. And he tells them a story, just a metaphorical story. He says, you know, there's these two young fish swimming and, and they're just swimming in the water and an older fish kind of comes by them in the water and says, uh, hey boys, good morning, how's the water? And the two younger fish keep swimming in the water and they look at each other they're like, what the heck is water? Because they're just, they just, for them it was like, they don't know anything else. What's the difference? They're immersed, right? And so we might not even, lo- we might not even realize that we love what we think we love because we're immersed in a culture and in rival liturgies. And what if you want, and what if what you want and what you love has actually been shaped by rival liturgies and you're not aware of it? What if what you love has been shaped by rival liturgies and therefore we're loving rival kingdoms, but we're not even aware because we're so immersed in it like those fish? So what do we do with that? Well, we do continue next week. And we're going to talk about another kind of liturgy. But let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. And one, one or two, the first one's this. We are wired as to love and to live, not just to think. Now, I, I am a thinker, and I like to think, and I like to read. And reading really, I think, enriches your heart and your soul and your mind in so many ways. But lovers and do, we're lovers and doers, not just thinkers. We're lovers and doers and not just thinkers. In other words, we need to be aware of the info-only influence. Because we say, well, 
we're just influenced by ideas and what we read and what we memorize. And in fact, Christian discipleship is a little bit weird that way where, you know, sometimes Christian discipleship is like, memorize this verse. So somehow by memorizing those words, we're going to live differently. But if we don't live it and love it, then they can just be memorized words. So we're not just info only influence. We're lovers and doers. We're not just thinkers. So Jesus' question to Peter was, do you love me? Not, Peter, have you memorized the last sentence I told you in the Garden of Gethsemane? But, Peter, do you love me? See, we cannot not love. We're wired for it. And why do we need to recognize this? Because our habits actually shape what we love. If, if our love is shaped by our habits, what shapes our habits? And so we need to recognize that we're lovers and doers, not just thinkers. That most things in life are caught more than they are taught. Most things in life. In fact, if you're a parent and you can teach your kids all you want about respecting people, but if they hear you trash-talking someone, it doesn't matter what you've taught them, they're going to catch non-respect, Right? We catch things more than we're taught things. People love what they practice. They don't just love what they think. Even though I'm a big advocate about making sure we're thinking well, but people love what they practice, not just what they think. Sometimes we're blinded to what we really love. And then the last idea is this. Discern what shapes your love. If we can do anything this week and ongoing in this series, we're just slowly working through this. Discern what shapes your love. What rival liturgies shape your love? What rival liturgies shape your devotion? What rival liturgies are you immersed in and you don't even realize and I don't even realize? What do you do second in, with second nature, like, like the back of your hand? What do you automate and, and do repeatedly? What are the repeatable practices and decisions that you do that actually tell you, oh, what's she? this is what I love? And then ask yourself, what rival liturgies are forming those habits in me? Because things we do do something to us. The things we do do something to us. This uh, last week, after last Sunday's talk, and I met up with a few people on Tuesday morning, and we started, one of them was from Westside, so we started to talk about that question, what do you love? And so they had shared something, and then I started, I, I was sharing something, and I started to share a little bit about what I was conflicted with that particular few days or week because over the last couple of weeks, I've been kind of like re-looking at my finances and re-looking at, uh, you know, what I, what I do for my kids, like for the future and save for our future as a family and, and how we budget and things. And, and I was so immersed in that for the last week or two that when I was talking to this person about what we love, I started to, I started to ask, this, ask this question. I thought, do I love security too much? Because it's not bad, it's actually wise, and even biblical wisdom will tell us, right? Save wisely, don't, don't spend more than you make, you know, be generous, and you know, we, you know, I pr- promote often, like live a 10, 10, 80 life, like give 10%, save 10%, and live off the rest, and there's wisdom in that, right? But as I was immersed in like, just re-looking at things, and, and looking at our budget, and looking at different things, when I was asked the question, what do you love? I thought, wow, I spent like the last week and a half looking at all this stuff. And I thought, was I a little bit, can I get over worried about security? As I, as I looked at like what I got involved in for the last week, just so into that. And it just made me think, what, do I love that too much? Is there anything in my life that I love 
too much. Could be really good, even biblical wisdom, but can I veer off from time to time? I was so grateful because as I was reading uh, what I often read every day in the daily office with some scripture and prayers and, and readings, two or three days in a row, it, it, was, it, challenged, it, it unveiled a little bit of that in me and pointed me towards what it means to be in solidarity with the poor and what it means to be in solidarity with those who don't know what's coming the next day. And I thought, I was so grateful. It was like God's grace that I believe just allowed me to read through some of those things in the same week that this question came up. And I thought, we need things to light up our lives and to unveil the rival liturgies that shape what we love. And just if you have like a Bible Gateway app, I like to just read the verse of the day every day. And yesterday's verse of the day was Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. And today's verse of the day was Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. And it's that, it's that truth that will then un, like unearth what are the rival liturgies in my life? What's shaping my love? Let's stand as we close in prayer today. And we'll let us think about this for the week. And next week when we come back, we're going to look at a, a formational liturgy. A liturgy that forms our love in a way that forms our devotion towards God. In the next couple of weeks, we'll focus a little bit on that. I'm excited about that. But let's close in prayer right now and just invite the Lord uh, to speak into our own hearts. And as we do that, there are so many rival liturgies out there. And, and as you think about that, as we've done the, the analogy of the mall, so many of them don't actually give us the ultimate life, the life of flourishing God has in mind for us in store for us. That's why they're rivals. So maybe as a prayer this week, we can be saying, Lord, show me, unveil the rival liturgies that are shaping what I love. And ask yourself, are they really giving me ultimate life? And ask the Lord to lead you through to the, um, the things that he longs to shape your life with. Let's pray. Father, um, Lord, we just ask at the close of this, and as we think about, you know, even in a humorous way, we can look at things like the mall, but in so many other ways, God, there's things, there's rival liturgies in our lives grabbing our attention. We just want to admit that today before you and with one another. We want to admit, God, that there are things that are vying for our attention, that there's a battle for our love and our loves. So we just say openly to you, God, we... We come before you and and invite you to strengthen us. Give us clarity and wisdom, discernment. Unveil what kind of liturgies shape our love. And if some of those things are leading us to love rival kingdoms, not your kingdom, because God, our heart, as the psalmist writes, our soul really does long for you. Our soul really does desire you. And we long to grow in that fulfillment and that flourishing. But we admit, Lord, that there's things that detour us away from that, that are trying to shape what we love in a different way. So we confess that before you and invite the work of your spirit to mold us and shape us. For some here today, maybe, maybe are just longing for you to be at work in their lives and they've, they haven't yet put their trust in, in your son, Jesus. God, may they know today that as they, if they long to make that step, as they turn their trust to following Jesus, that that step will help them 
discover the kingdom, your kingdom, that brings joy, hope, fulfillment, and eternal purpose. And even now, as maybe one or two are thinking through that, God, would you, by your grace, reveal Jesus to them in such a powerful way? And for all of us, as we move forward this week, um, we just say yes to the, to, the, to the work of your spirit in our lives. Be a reminder this week. Bring light to our hearts, our minds, our loves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.